to our podcast, Critical Conversations. My name is Shauna and I'm here with Aina and we'll be your host today. We're delighted to welcome Rachel and Emma here today, both critical care advanced nurse practitioners in the general ICU in St. James's Hospital. Thank you very much, ladies, for joining us. So we'll start um, by, can you give us a little bit of your nursing background, what your journey was like to becoming an MP? And maybe we'll start with you, Rachel. So thank you very much for having us today. We're very excited to be here. Um, we have very similar nursing journeys, but Emma's is a bit more exciting than mine. So <laughs> we both trained in Limerick. We both graduated in 2013 and we both went over to sunny Slough in the UK. And that's where we began our ICU journey. So we were only about three or four months qualified when we started in ICU. Um, and then from there, we did some mentorship. We did a mentorship program and we, I, we both did that, actually, the postgraduate uh, certificate then. Um, I then progressed to advanced six role, so it's kind of a CNM one level role over in Wexham. So I was managing a twelve bed at ICU, and then I came back to Ireland. So I started in the cardiothoracic unit um, in James's into twenty seventeen, and then I came to the general ICU. I liked the cardiothoracics, but I just really missed the variety that you get in ICU. I mean, I, and I like the excitement of you don't know when who's coming through the door. Um, and then I was lucky enough that these roles came up in 2020 and I was even more lucky to be successful when I applied for one. Um, and yeah, that's been my journey. Here you are. And here I am. <laughs> and yourself, Emma. Um, so like Rachel said, my journey is very similar to Rachel's. We were actually um, in college together. Um, so we did our undergrad, undergrad together in University of Limerick. We worked in University Hospital Limerick then as um, intern nurses, and then we headed off to Slough together in 2014. Yeah. Um, so we both went straight into ICU. Like Rachel said, we did our postgrad there, we did our mentorship there. And um, just before Rachel took a band six there, I left Slough and I went working with um, in the Royal Free actually in mm. um, London. Um, so I did that for a little while and then I did a little bit of agency nursing. Um, at that point I was band six as well and then I decided to do um, some flight nursing. So I did um, I did a course in aeromedical um, transfers um, and then I started working with Capital Air Ambulance then as well. Mm. So I did that for a while and then I took a job at Northwick Park Hospital um, as well and I was there for a little while and it was a 50-50 outreach contract and ICU contract. So I never wanted to leave ICU, so I did a little bit of both. Um, and then I found out I was having twins. So <laughs> that very quickly put a stop to the outreach because I couldn't be running around the hospital like a lunatic. Um, so after I had the twins, then I moved back again to Ireland and I worked um, at the ICU in University Hospital Limerick for two and a half years. Um, while I was there, I started my A&P course. I think you were doing your master's at the time here. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then another job came up working with Rachel and Una and Lally, who were it was established to service. And Rachel kept on to me to apply for it. She was sending me houses and leak slip every week. Um, and eventually I said, okay, fine, I'll just I'll do it for the interview and we'll see how we get on. And then I was off with the job. Um, so yeah, I took it and I think everybody thought I was a bit mad. But yeah, have busy, a look back busy years. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and now you're back together. And, yeah, yeah. That was yeah, that was the main pull really. <laughs> Such a liar. Can you discuss your role as an MP and um, within here in the critical care environment and what benefits does it bring to our patient and to the nursing profession? Uh, so we're a very unique role to James's and a lot of critical care MPs in the country focus on outreach models of care, whereas what we do is a little bit different. We work within the ICU a lot more. So our two main areas of focus are access and egress to and from the ICU. 
Um, and we have four pillars. Um, so I'll talk about the first two and then Emma will talk about the next two. So we work pre-ICU and that's where we go and see patients before they come to the ICU. So we go to cardiac arrest calls. Uh, if there's a nurse in the ward that's worried about a patient, they can refer to us as well. We don't have a specific, if they reach a specific U score, for example, that they refer to us. Um, it's just nurse concern, basically. Yeah. And then the regs let us know when a patient needs to come in. We go to the ward, we help stabilise them and transfer them up. Um, our main kind of role there is to try and bring the patient into ICU as quickly as possible. So we know that for every hour that a patient is delayed being admitted to ICU, their mortality increases by 1%. Mm. Um, we were recently runner up prize for our NOCA Quality Improvement Champion Award for 2023, which we're very proud of. Well um, done. <laughs> thank you. And we showed that we could increase the overall access of a patient to ICU. Um, and that's just by having someone there that communicates directly with the ICU and make mm. sure everyone is ready for the admission and the patient is stable, of course. Mm and um, the next yeah. pillar that we work in is in ICU so we work within here we see patients ourselves sometimes instead of a reg sometimes with a reg um, and the idea behind that is that we ensure care bundle compliance that we are here as educators as well on the unit to try and help everybody if they've got a really sick patient or if they've just got a query a nursing query they can come to us um, and we found that's really good for getting to know our patients really well and with the weaning patients and we don't have a six month turnover of staff like we see with the NCHD so it's a bit more continuity of care um, and it's sometimes it's just to have the advanced nursing voice in the unit as well which is really helpful. Um, yeah so like Brina said then we have four pillars so those are our first two um, then we concentrate on post ICU care as well so basically um, any of our complex patients that would have been you know in ICU are traffic light system is for more than a week um, or who have a lot of comorbidities or basically had a complicated ICU stay. We follow them up then when they go to the wards. Um, and it's basically because, you know, in that transition of care, sometimes things can get missed and it's just a link between ICU and the wards. It's also support for the nurses on the wards. So if they have any questions or anything about their ICU care, um, we're a little link with them and they know that they can call us if they're worried. So last year we followed up, um, it was about 400 reviews. So some patients we might go and see more than once if we're still mm. a little bit worried about them. Um, so that's, you know, 400 reviews that wouldn't have happened before the service was established two years ago. Education wise as well, we try, we concentrate a lot on education. So um, a lot of it actually has been outside of ICU. Um, we're trying to improve our education um, KPIs in ICU. But last year we, um, did in-situ simulation spots so where we go to the ward we use a bed space on the ward and it just helps with like logistics of a deteriorating patient so we will basically do like a 20 minute like a first simulation scenario of a deteriorating patient and have the nurses from that ward sometimes we have interns sometimes we have um, physios occupational therapists um, pharmacists and we will just run through a scenario. So that's some of our education we do. Um, we also do intern tracky days. So we teach the interns coming in about tracky emergencies. One of our AMPs is an ACLS instructor. So we do ACLS courses. Rachel is just qualified as a BLS instructor. We're starting male catheterization um, courses soon. So there is a lot of education we do as well. Um, as part of our role as advanced nurse practitioners, about 25% of our role is supposed to be research and education based. So um, last year, I suppose, when we were doing our dissertation, we all had different education that we were focusing on and research. So you were doing some implementation science with your dissertation. Mine was focusing on vascular access in ICU patients. And um, Una's then was about role clarity mm -hmm. of the advanced nurse practitioner. 
Um, so my, my dissertation protocol has just got published actually, and I'm hoping to publish um, the manuscript to follow in the next oh. couple of months. Congratulations. Thank you. Gosh, I feel like I've been at it forever. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot of research and education to the advanced nurse practitioner role as well. Um, but it's all good. It all ties in together. Yeah, brilliant. And just when you were mentioning there about Una, you know, doing her master's on role clarity. So it has, as we've known, been discussed that the advanced practice roles can become blurred. It may be difficult to evaluate or identify in practice, you know, the actual role. So what's your take on this? Um, yeah, so that is that's always been a challenge. And it's it's kind of nice that it's well documented across the literature because it means that when we are struggling with our role clarity, we know that it's a common theme. Um, so again, our role is very unique to James's. We're not outreach and a lot of other hospitals are. Um, so that can sometimes be an issue. Regarding evaluating it and identifying in practice, we do a lot of staff surveys. So we recently did a staff survey of the staff in ICU to see if the role is clear. And um, about 30% of people still find that it's not clear. It's to be expected and it's a completely fair um, analysis of our job because we are sometimes educators, as we were saying, we do a lot of educational work. Uh, we also help a little bit on the management side of things, making sure that people are okay if they need a hand with anything. Um, and then our main focus is that we don't want to become uh, mini regs, I think is the term that's sometimes yeah. used, or mini SHOs. Um, so we're trying to stay nursing focused while still providing advanced care to patients. So um, for us, it's still hard to even know ourselves what our own role clarity is and where we fit into the picture because we're a new service as well. It's not like we're sliding into a job that was already there for us that so we can go, oh, this is the job. We have mm -hmm. to kind of see where the gaps are, how we fit in. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. That's exciting too, because you can make it your own. Yes. Um, and so what's one of the biggest challenges you faced within your role and how do you overcome them? So definitely um, role clarity has been the biggest mm -hmm. challenge. So we've done a lot about trying to figure out the role clarity. And like Rachel said, sometimes we struggle ourselves to kind of see where we fit in. Um, so then obviously trying to translate that to everybody else is difficult. So some things that we've done, like A&P week this year, we did a, an A&P roadshow. So we made leaflets about our service. And we broke everything up into our pillars to try and make it more clear for people. Um, we printed business cards and then we went around to every ward in the hospital and um, we did little focus groups and um, just to tell them about our role, how to contact us, what we do. Um, and that was really good. I think that really helped. Um, we do some focus groups here in the ICU sometimes as well. We've presented at the medical grand rounds to try and um, you know get all the doctors on board with what we do. We've presented at the nursing grand rounds. Um, we present at the mandatory training for the staff nurses um, and the CNM here in ICU. Um, bedside education. So, you know, if, you know, if there's not a whole pile going on, we will grab a few nurses at the bedside. We will go through our leaflet and, you know, try and make sure that everyone is up to date and that people ask questions just to clarify if there's anything. Um, we've made posters, stuck them up all around the hospital. <laughs> You'll see our faces everywhere and anywhere. <laughs> Um, last year for AMP week, we did little bios. So sometimes you'll see our faces on the screens around the hospital and little bios of what we do. Um, and then at NCHD changeover. So we find that, you know, doctors change over every six months. They will just have a grasp on, you know, when to call us, when not to call us, what we do, what we don't do. And then they're gone. We try and meet the new doctors then in their induction week um, and give them a little presentation about what we do, when to call us. Um, so that's how we're trying to overcome them. Um, it's definitely getting better. And I think, you know, as the service expands, we're more confident and comfortable with what we do ourselves. And yeah, it's definitely getting better than what it was, but it's definitely was the biggest challenge so far, I think. And can you talk about future plans for the service? 
Um, yes, so future plans for the service. So we're really lucky that, like Rachel said, we're, we're not outreach. So there's not a, a model of care there that we work off um, per se. So we have the autonomy basically to look at the service and the ICU and the organization and how it operates. Um, and I think as nurses, we have a good eye for seeing you know, the patient journey and where there's gaps in it. Um, and we've had great support from our local governance committee, which includes you know, our ADON, our director of nursing, the consultants, and we've been supported to basically find those gaps and then try and put in improvements. So a couple of things that we found in the last two years, two and a half years, mm -hmm. um, and we've kind of, you know, it hasn't been on purpose, but we've all kind of <laughs> picked a little project that we're kind of passionate about. So our plans at the minute, we are looking at um, an ERAS pathway, so um, an enhanced recovery after surgery pathway. So Una's kind of focusing on this at the moment, and it's basically where we meet elective patients. Before they come in, we give them a tour of the ICU, um, and it's generally to take away the fear of the unknown about the ICU, and you know, we'll show them the monitors, we'll show them all the leads, and what they all do. So they have, you know, there's not that unknown when they wake up and they've got all these leads and everything on them. Um, we also provide the opportunity for them to meet a patient who's had their surgery, um, who's maybe four or five days down the line, and have a chat with them. Um, so we focus on esophagectomy at the minute, but we're hoping to roll it out to all of our elective patients. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our head and neck patients, our cancer patients and all that. Um, and then basically because we see them then on follow-up in the ward, it's kind of continuity of care. So we get to know them before they come in, while they're in ICU, and then we see them again on the ward. So that's why it's the, um, the whole, you know, surgical journey. Um, so that's kind of what Una's focusing on. Um, to follow up then with the whole follow-up service side of it, Rachel has been looking at um, a follow-up service for after hospital discharge. So we know that patients, once they're, they're discharged from ICU, there is some great voluntary organizations out there like ICU Steps where they can go and they can, you know, chat about their, their hospital journey and their ICU journey. But there's nothing formal really from the hospital side of you. So what we're hoping to do is to establish a formal follow-up service and then bring these patients back, you know, maybe three months after their ICU discharge and make sure that they're, you know, finding their feet basically, mm -hmm. because it's one thing to survive ICU, but to get back home and, you know, return to work, it's a whole process. And we have a better eye for that. You know, obviously there's GPs and stuff out there, but a lot of people don't know what goes on in ICU. And these people's families, they might never again want to talk about the ICU yeah. journey, whereas the patients themselves do. So that is another thing we have in the pipeline. We're hoping to start that at the end of the year. Hopefully, yeah. That'd I'll be great. Where, yeah, once we have all the resources ticked up. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's a, it's a huge process. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing that I'm kind of focusing on at the minute is, um, again, it's to do with my dissertation and everything. It's vascular access and ICU. So we did an audit recently. We found the patients, they have a long wait to get um, a pick line in ICU, sometimes up to 10 days. And while they're waiting for that pick line, they get extra center lines inserted. So one thing we're looking at is a advanced nurse practitioner-led pick service, where we will be able to de-escalate their lines and give them a pick line, which will hopefully last them their journey to hospital discharge and improve their care and basically stop them getting poked with several other lines in the process. So those are three things we're focusing on that. And we also have Trina and Karen are still studying. So they'll be, I think Karen's going to register by the end of the year. It's really exciting. And they're still finishing off their studies. So they're finding their little niches and what their little specialities are. And then Paddy and Louise have just started with us. So mm -hmm. they need really to find their feet and find what projects they like to. But it's really exciting. Yes. It's really yeah. exciting. And a lot of things stand ahead for the future. Yeah.
did you find studying for the candidate role while you were working full time? Um, it was a little bit easier for me then. <laughs> um, so I suppose we were studying around the same time of the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. I'm sure everyone's heard of it. Um, so all of, almost all of my lectures anyway were online. Um, and I had a lot of time because there was no social occasions and all that stuff going on. So I had time to do it, but it was still very difficult. You're working full time, you're studying. When you're not studying, you're feeling guilty about not studying. And it was also a two year course. Um, and I was wedding planning at the time. So my dissertation was handed in six weeks before my wedding. So um, if I can get through that, I can get through anything. Um, but again, Emma had a much harder time than I did. <laughs> I also had a lot more pre time. So there was a lot of free time there and <laughs> um, so yeah so I had um the twins at home they were they were two and a half when I started so again and again this was bad planning by me I assumed that they were starting preschool the following year but I actually got it wrong so they weren't so they were at home with me um and it was it's hard going like there was definitely tears and stuff um but like my commute I have a three and a half hour commute there's a lot of dead time there on the bus so in the morning I would generally try and nap for an hour and then I would do my college work and then on the commute home it was completely dedicated to college work so I would get like three and a half hours there um solid studying or you know doing assignments and things like that and it meant that when I was at home then I was actually at home and um, so there was definitely pros and cons to the the whole commute um, but it's definitely hard but it's doable like it's it's definitely doable if I can do it anybody can do it <laughs> definitely it's really a balancing act isn't yeah it? exactly yeah. and how did you find the transition from being an experienced IC staff nurse to candidate a and um, yeah we were talking about this earlier it was such a a big jump and I definitely was aware of how big of a jump it was um I'm not sure if it's easier to have worked in the unit or not worked in the unit but for me having worked in the unit everyone already knew me and knew I was a staff nurse so I was trying to get them to trust me to trust in yourself and your own clinical judgment is really hard at any level but then to be like oh no I'm I'm supposed to be the big person here I'm supposed to know what I'm doing so getting the confidence and the trust in yourself uh, that was hard getting the trust from everybody else but you know it's all a work in progress I think when you're in a training post as well you give yourself a lot of room you go okay I'm learning now and I know that I'm not going to know everything on day one it's going to be a long transition and then leadership and management as well was a huge part of it I had some management experience but not a whole lot um, so just trying to figure out how to do all that stuff while setting up a new service yeah it was it was hard but uh yeah, good fun. <laughs> How did you find me? So, yeah, so I came from, again, a staff nurse position, but I came into a different hospital. So I think people, you know, assumed that I had that management experience and things like that. So I was definitely harder on myself than other people were. Um, and like that, it's trying to trust yourself in the decisions you make. Like, I think you're your own biggest critic. So, um, yeah, just trying to give yourself a little bit of, you know, space and things to say, you're actually, you're doing okay. Um, but there was definitely pros to it as well like you know I think we're really aware of you know how much the staff nurse does and like they're at the bedside all day long like so there's definitely pros to it that way as well yeah. you we know, kind of have our ear to the ground yeah almost. exactly yeah. and we're very aware about like helping on the floor and making sure that everyone feels supported um so yeah even though it was a big jump I think it's you know it was very grounding as well yeah yeah and, and we hope that people feel they can you know ask us and they understand that we were very much in that position very recently but yeah. you can ask us for help for anything yeah brilliant and you've mentioned about asking for help so what advice would you give to anyone then that's thinking of a career in advanced practice nursing um yes yeah, so we were talking about this as well a while ago um yeah it's great like you you know you have autonomy to 
to do things and to move things on how you see they should. Um, but we would definitely say get as much experience in the area as you can, because when I, when I started the course anyway, I thought I was going to go into college and they were going to teach me how to be an advanced nurse practitioner. And that was great. I was going to come out after two years and know everything and be an expert in this and that. But, you know, it's not, you know, it's, it's very much, um, there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of, you know, leadership, decision-making and things like that, but, and like not the clinical side of it. Mm -hmm. So it's very good to have your experience before you start the course. Be aware that you're not going to go through your course and come out then the end of it. Like, I feel like since I've done the course now, it's now that I'm really learning. Yeah. Um, so just to be aware of that. Don't think you're going to do the course and you'll be an expert at the end of it. Um, and then... The other thing is make sure you're happy in your speciality. Um, I think they've recently got rid of the, you know, you had to be five years experience now before you do your advanced nurse practitioner. So make sure you're happy in your speciality because once you specialize in a certain area, it's hard to leave it then after that. And if you're not happy, you put a lot of work into it. So make sure you're happy with what you're doing. Make sure you're happy to stay there for a very long time. Um, but if the opportunity comes up, it is a great job. Yeah. 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 And take the opportunities. I mean, I almost talked myself out of applying for this job two or three times. Only a friend of mine had a dream that I was an A&P. And so I used to apply. Um, <laughs> so shout out to her. Um, and my dad used to always say, never say no to doing an interview. It's always good practice. And even if you're not successful, you've had the experience to go and, and do it again. So yeah. And on a different note then, so do you have a favorite book or have you recently read the book and it can't be anything to do with nursing? <laughs> uh, well, my favorite book of all time is Marion Gee's Rachel's Holiday and I've convinced Emma to read it. Yes, and she's recently convinced me to buy it. We were went to a conference in, oh. in Athens in October and she made me buy it in the air. Um, so I've been a while getting through it, but it is very good. So that's what I'm reading at the minute. Other than that, I've read a lot of children's books recently, um, which are great. Great. No, that's narcissism yeah. coming across. <laughs> my favorite book is about a holiday. Um, I just read the one uh, by Jeanette McCurdy. She's like a Nickelodeon star, and it's I'm glad my mom died, which sounds very well. It is a very grim book actually, um, but it's about how her mother was uh, quite emotionally manipulative and really interesting. It looks at child stardom and all those things in Hollywood. Um, so yeah, I read it really quickly. It was very good. There we go. Yeah. Um, thanks very much to you both for joining us today. Thanks to all our listeners. Please download and like or subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you all on the next episode of Critical Conversations. Mm -hmm.